This morning, I am continuing in my summer sermon series, The Power of One, a Power of One Life. And what I'm doing is looking at a minor biblical character every week, someone I can preach on in one Sunday. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the story of an unnamed blind man from John chapter 9 and his interaction with Jesus. So I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's 41 verses long. I'll put it up on the screen so you can follow along. Uh, and we'll look at this story of this unnamed blind man and what it has to teach us about our relationship with God. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground and made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was, and others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they demanded. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes, and he told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. And finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now we can see? We know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know. I was blind, but now I see. When they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already. You did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. 
Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What, are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. This is God's word. Let me pray before we continue. Father, we ask that you would open our ears to hear this and open our hearts to understand what this means today, what it meant in, when it was written, what it means to our lives today. Reveal yourself in a deeper way to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to use three key statements from this passage to guide this sermon today and help us understand what this has to do with our relationship with God. And so the first statement is this. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Now, there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four accounts of Jesus' life. One of the features of John's Gospel is that he has a lot of these I am statements where Jesus is saying, I am, such as I am the gate, I am the bread of life, I am the good shepherd, and right here, I am the light of the world. And often those statements are in the context of him acting out something that displays what he means by it. So here we have, I am the light of the world as he gives a blind man sight. There's other examples where he says, I am the bread of life, and he feeds the 5,000. Or, I am the resurrection and the life, and he raises Lazarus from the dead. And so here we have this blind man receiving sight, and Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. And again, he's making a point that's not just about giving a blind man sight, but there's something deeper going on that is signified by him calling himself the light of the world. And we see that in this riddle at the end of John 9, where he says, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. And the Pharisees who were with him heard this and said, What, are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. So he's clearly speaking figuratively here. He's not saying that, you know, he's going to make the Pharisees go blind and that they can't see physically, you know. It's not just about giving a blind man sight. It's something spiritual going on, that Jesus is the light of the world, and by him, He is able to give spiritual sight to the blind, and those who think they can see are really blind, like the Pharisees. Makes me think first and foremost of Matthew 5, 8, in the the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And now even though God is spirit, he's saying there's some way that you can see God, that you can know God, that is deeper than just seeing things with your eyes. Think of Ephesians 1, 17 and 19, where Paul says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Did you know you had eyes in your heart? Here Paul is saying, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you would see God and see the hope that he has for you and see the great power and see the inheritance, see all of these things that you can't see with your physical eyes. There's more than just sight, physical sight, that Jesus is talking about when he says, I am the light of the world. It's a great quote from C.S. Lewis on why he believes. He said this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. It's a great way of putting it. What Jesus means when he says, I am the light of the world. It's not just that I see God and know God, but that by him, I see everything else. 
By knowing him, I see everything else in a completely new way. One way of thinking about it is you might think, I've used this illustration before for those of you who've been around, but uh, you might think of kind of the different levels of consciousness there are and how there's rocks. And then you have a plant that has a different level of being able to experience the world than a rock does. But then you think about the difference between a plant and an animal like a cat and how an animal can experience and know and see the world in a higher level of consciousness than can a plant. And then the difference between a human and an animal and how we experience the world at a higher level than even an animal. And here Jesus is saying that those who know him, those who have the Holy Spirit, have a way of seeing the world that is even beyond the ordinary human. They see with the eyes of their heart. They can see and know God in a way that they couldn't before they had the Holy Spirit, before they knew God. That, that others who don't know God just don't see the world. There's a whole different level of consciousness, a whole different level, level of seeing that comes from knowing God because Jesus is the light of the world. Do you understand this or not? Some of you maybe can look back at your life and you see the before and the after and you can see how coming to faith in Jesus allowed you to see the world in a way that just you had never experienced, you had never understood it before. I came to faith when I was an 18-year-old and I can look back and see how there was a difference between the way I saw the world before and after, that things that seemed normal and, and, and right all of a sudden were clearly wrong, clearly were not good for me or for others. There was a sensitivity to sin there had not been before. There was a, there was a desire for God to know him, a desire to, and the Bible came alive in a way that it had never before, where instead of this being this dry, boring book, all of a sudden it was God speaking to me. There was a way of seeing and knowing that had not been there before. Think of Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That what, that's what happened where all of a sudden it was illuminating. Jesus, the light of the world, the word of God, illuminating for me the path of life, the way to live. So that's the first statement. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. It's not just that we can see and know God, but that by him we see the world in a completely new way. The second statement is this. The blind man says this. A second time they summon the man who had been blind. Give glory to God. We, we know this man is a sinner, the Pharisee said. And he replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know. I was blind, but now I see. It's a great line. It's like, I don't know who this guy is. I don't know where he came from. I can't answer all your questions. I don't know theology. I don't know all of this. All I know is that I was blind, and now I can see. That he has transformed my life. <laughs> you can't argue with that. And they try their best to say, maybe it's a different person. Maybe he wasn't really blind. Maybe it was a whole charade here. But in the end, no, he was blind. And now he sees. This line, of course, is memorialized in the hymn Amazing Grace, right? I once was blind, but now I see. Can't explain it all, but he has given me spiritual sight. I just want to quickly use this to ask you can you articulate your testimony? You know, we're going to have people sharing their testimony of why it is they believe in Jesus or how they came to faith in him today after the, ser after the sermon. Uh, can you do that? If someone were to ask you why you believe, would you be able to put into words your story, what you were like before you 
met God, before you came to faith in Jesus, what your life has been like after, why it is that you believe. Peter tells us that we should be ready to give an answer for the faith that we have, for the hope that we have. My challenge to you this morning is, you know, it was very simple for this guy, right? He could point to his eyes and say, I was blind and now I can see. But what would you point to in your life? How would you be able to articulate your testimony if someone asked you, why do you believe in God? What difference has he made in your life? I want to focus now on the third statement. The first is this, that Jesus is, I am the light of the world. That by him we don't only see God, but we see the world in a completely different way. That I was blind, but now I see that because of his salvation, we are transformed and we are different. Can you articulate that? And then thirdly, As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. This happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Third statement is this. This happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Certainly one of the biggest questions of life has to do with suffering, right? Whether or not you follow Jesus... Whether or not you believe in God or not, one of the biggest questions is the why question. Why have I suffered? Why do people suffer? Why does a young man die of cancer? Why was I abused? Why am I bipolar? Why can't I get rid of this depression? You look around and you see divorce, abandonment. Every week's a different hurricane or tornado or earthquake or disaster. Causes many people to abandon God, to give up on faith as they look around the world and say, where is God in all this suffering? And the disciples ask Jesus this question. They say, who sinned? Was it this blind man or was it his parents that he was born blind? And you can see there's a theology, there's an understanding of suffering that someone must be to blame for this man who's born blind. Is he being punished for something he's done or is he being punished because of his parents, the sins of the parents visited upon the son? And you see there are two common approaches to suffering. The first is to blame others, right? Did he, is he blind because of his parents' sin? And plenty of people in this world blame others for their suffering. Your parents are to blame. The church is to blame. Your boss is to blame. Trump is to blame. Biden is to blame. The patriarchy is to blame. The system that someone out there is to blame. Or ultimately that God is to blame. That we are just victims and the reason we're suffering is because of the sins of others. Or the second approach is that it's my fault. Is he born blind because of something he did? It's my own fault. I'm guilty. I'm responsible for my own happiness and I'm responsible for my own suffering. If I'm in poverty, it's my own fault. If my marriage is broken, it's my own fault. My kids are screwed up. It's my own fault. If I don't have a job, it's my own fault. And of course, that leads to a lot of guilt and despair, whereas the first might lead to a lot of bitterness and anger. And of course, there's some truth in both, isn't there? There's some truth in both. Sometimes we are suffering because of the sins of other people. Sometimes our suffering is because other people have victimized us or hurt us. And sometimes we're suffering because of our own foolish decisions and because we've made poor mistakes. But for the sake of this morning, 
I just want you to look at how Jesus approaches this. He doesn't focus on the question of who's to blame, right? They ask him the why question. Why is this man blind? Was it something he did? Was it something his parents did? And Jesus doesn't answer the why question. Instead, he focuses on the so what question. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happens that the work of God might be displayed in his life. It's a different approach to suffering, isn't it? A future-facing, a hope-filled, purposeful outlook on suffering. He doesn't even try to answer the question. He doesn't give him a theology of suffering, of the fall and the interaction of this man and his parents and all that happened. He just says it's not about the why question. He points them to the so what question. This happens that the work of God might be displayed in his life. And then he heals the man of his blindness. And I want to challenge you this morning to just consider taking Jesus' perspective on whatever suffering you've been through, whatever it is you're going through now, to instead of looking back and and wondering the why question, what was my fault, what was someone else's fault, instead ask God to help you take this perspective so the work of God might be displayed in your life. There's two particular ways I think this is true. First is that God uses our suffering to make us more like Jesus. That that is what God does. That he can take whatever suffering that we've brought upon ourselves or that others have brought upon us and he can use it for our good. As it says in Romans 8, 28 to 29, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Romans 8.28 is a very well-known passage. Romans 8.29, not so much, but they do go together. Romans 8.28 promises us that God is always working all things together for good for those who love him, that no matter what suffering you've brought upon yourself or others have brought upon you, that God is able to use all of it for good. Romans 8.29 gives us a little more insight as to what that good is. The good is not that the marriage is always going to be saved, the kids are always going to turn around, The job's always going to come back and all of those things that our world might say is good. But he says the ultimate good is to make you more like Jesus. To purify you so you might be like him. A person of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is what he's up to. That is part of when Jesus says this happens that the work of God might be displayed in his life about the blind man. I want to encourage you to recognize that part of what God does in suffering is to make you more like Jesus, to conform you more to the image of his son. It doesn't excuse what happened to you. It doesn't make it good. If someone abused or hurt you, that is still evil. It is still wrong. But I'm encouraging this morning to listen to Jesus' future-facing, hope-filled words where he says, this happens that the work of God might be displayed. And to ask God to do just that. To display the work of God through whatever it is you've been through. The second way, there's two ways, two main ways I see biblically that God uses our suffering for good. The first is to make us more like Jesus. And the second is to equip us to more effectively minister to others. Paul suffered tremendously. Some of you know about the Apostle Paul's story and all the ways that he suffered. He wrote these encouraging words in 2 Corinthians 1. He said, praise be 
to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. In this context, Paul's talking about having been shipwrecked, having been in a place where he thought that he was going to die. But he said, you know, God did not let us die. He brought us his comfort. He brought us his hope. He brought us his peace. And now I can minister out of that to others. And he says, praise be to God, because that's what he does. When we go through things, hard things, one of the ways that God uses it for good, one of the ways that he uses it to display the work of God in our lives is that he equips us to minister to others in a way that we couldn't if we hadn't gone through what we've been through, right? Can you look back in your life and see examples? Can you look back and see ways and things you've been through that you never would wish on your worst enemy, things that you wish you didn't have to go through, but now you look back and you see how God has used it and is using it for good, that he's used it to equip you, that you can then minister to others in a way that you wouldn't have been able to if you had not gone through that. And again, that doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it good. It doesn't say that it wasn't evil, whatever was done. But it does mean that our God is greater than that evil. He's greater than suffering, and he is able to use it to display the work of God through our lives. Think of Joseph in Genesis, sold into slavery by his brothers, thrown into prison unjustly by Potiphar, forgotten in prison, and then eventually through this series of dream interpretations, ends up in a place where he will be second in command of Pharaoh, saving his family from famine and death. And when his brothers show up before him, fearing for their lives, because now they see the man that they've sold into slavery is now second in command and has the power to kill them, Joseph says this, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I mean, look at that. Look how nuanced that is. He doesn't excuse what his brothers did. He calls it out for what it is. You intended to harm me. You tried to kill me. But God, but even in that suffering, God was working for good to save many lives. What would it look like for you to take that perspective on whatever suffering you've been through, whatever suffering you're going through, what would it look like to take that perspective that Jesus gives to the blind man when he says this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life? And what happened in Joseph happened so that the work of God might be displayed for the saving of many lives. I'm going to share a quote that I share once every year. So those of you who've been around have heard it many times, but it's one of my favorite quotes of all time. So bear with me by Charles Spurgeon in his book, The Soul Winner. He was a 19th century London preacher, generally considered one of the greatest preachers of all time. And he tells this story that illustrates so well how God can take our suffering and use it to equip us to minister to others. He said this, Some years ago I was the subject of fearful depression of spirit. Certain troublous events had happened to me. I was also unwell and my heart sank within me. Out of the depths I was forced to cry unto the Lord, 
Just before I went away to Mentone for rest, I suffered greatly in body, but far more in soul, for my spirit was overwhelmed. Under this pressure, I preached a sermon from the words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I was as much qualified to preach from that text as ever I expect to be. Indeed, I hope that few of my brethren could have entered so deeply into those heartbreaking words. I felt to the full of my measure the horror of a soul forsaken by God. Now, that was not a desirable experience. I tremble at the bare idea of passing again through that eclipse of soul. I pray that I may never suffer in that fashion again, unless the same result should hang upon it. That night after the sermon, there came into the vestry a man who was as nearly insane as he could be to be out of an asylum. His eyes seemed ready to start from his head, and he said that he should utterly have despaired if he had not heard that discourse, which made him feel that there was one man alive who understood his feeling and could describe his experience. I talked with him and tried to encourage him and asked him to come again on the Monday night when I should have a little more time to talk with him. I saw the brother again, and I told him that I thought he was a hopeful patient, and I was glad that the word had been so suited to his case. Apparently, he put aside the comfort which I presented for his acceptance, and yet I had the consciousness upon me that the precious truth which he had heard was at work upon his mind, and that the storm of his soul would soon subside into a deep calm. Now hear the sequel. Last night of all the times in the year when, strange to say, I was preaching from the words, The Almighty hath vexed my soul, after the service in walked this selfsame brother who had called on me five years before. This time he looked as different as noonday from midnight or as life from death. I said to him, I'm glad to see you, for I have often thought about you and wondered whether you were brought into perfect peace. I told you that I went to Mentone, and my patient also went into the country, so that we had not met for five years. To my inquiries, this brother replied, Yes, you said I was a hopeful patient, and I am sure you'll be glad to know that I have walked in the sunlight from that day until now. Everything has changed and altered within me. Dear friends, as soon as I saw my poor despairing patient the first time, I blessed God that my fearful experience had prepared me to sympathize with him and guide him. But last night when I saw him perfectly restored, my heart overflowed with gratitude to God for my former sorrowful feelings. I would go into the deeps a hundred times to cheer a downcast spirit. It is good for me to have been afflicted that I might know how to speak a word in season to one that is weary. Suppose that, by some painful operation, you could have your right arm made a little longer. I do not suppose you would care to undergo the operation. But if you foresaw that by undergoing the pain, you would be enabled to reach and save drowning men who else would sink before your eyes. I think you would willingly bear the agony and pay a heavy fee to the surgeon to be thus qualified for the rescue of your fellows. Reckon then to acquire soul-winning power, you will have to go through fire and water, through doubt and despair, through mental torment and soul distress. It will not, of course, be the same with you all, nor perhaps with any two of you, but according to the work allotted you will be your preparation. You must go into the fire if you are to pull others out of it, And you will have to dive into the floods if you are to draw others out of the water. You cannot work a fire escape without feeling the scorch of the conflagration, nor man a lifeboat without being covered with the waves. If Joseph is to preserve his brethren alive, he must himself go down into Egypt. If Moses is to lead the people through the wilderness, he must first himself spend 40 years there with his flock. Payson truly said, if anyone asks to be made a successful minister, he knows not what he asks. And it becomes him to consider whether he could drink deeply of Christ's bitter cup and be baptized with his baptism. 
It's good stuff. So the disciples, seeing this blind man, ask Jesus, why is he blind? Who sinned, this man or his parents? Who's at fault here? And Jesus says, it's not about the why question. It's about the so what question. This happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. And I don't know what is going on in your life right now. I don't know what kind of suffering you have been through or what kind of suffering you're still going through. But I want to encourage you this morning that God's desire is to use whatever pain that you're going through for your good, for his glory, for the salvation of others. To comfort you that you might comfort others with the comfort you've received. You look at Jesus on the cross and you say, whose fault is this? Was it the Jews? Was it the Romans? Was it his own fault? And the answer is, it's not about the why question. It's about the so what question. This happened so that the work of God might be displayed. This happened so that many might be saved. Another one of my favorite quotes is by the author Donald Miller. He said, somehow we realize that great stories are told in conflict, but we're unwilling to embrace the potential greatness of the story that we are actually in. We think God is unjust rather than a master storyteller. That reminder that when you watch any movies or you read any books, there's always a time in the middle where things seem like there's no hope, right? That things are going to be terrible. That's not how the story ends, and that's not how this story ends or how your story ends. God is always working for good. For your good, for the salvation of others, for his glory. Let me pray with you this morning and ask God to help you to trust in him. Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust you with our pain and our suffering. We thank you that we don't need to pretend it was good, that we know it was evil, that it was sin. Like Joseph said, you intended to harm me. But God intended it for good. This happened so the work of God might be displayed. God works all things together for good. We thank you for these promises. We thank you for these stories. I pray for my brothers and sisters here. Lord, that you would help them to hang on to you, to trust in you, to look to you, to be strengthened by you, that you might purify them to make them more like Jesus, and that you might comfort and equip them to minister to others, to bring life and salvation to others in a way that would not have been possible, Lord, if they had not gone through what they've been through. Open our eyes, Lord, to see you. Open our eyes to see the world as it is, to see you as it is, to see everything that is happening, Lord, truly with your perspective, with an eternal perspective. Help us to trust you today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to respond in worship right now. And I'm going to just go tell the Sunday school as well. They can come join us so that they can come. And we're going to share testimonies after we sing.